नमस्ते नमस्ते प्रोफेसर जेफरी लॉन्ग आई हैव बीन इन टच विद यू नाउ ऑलमोस्ट टू डेकेड्स नाउ द टाइम फ्लू बाय एंड वेरी हैप्पी टू बी एबल टू स्पीक विद यू ऑन स्काइप वी कीप मीटिंग ऑन इन कॉन्फ्रेंसेस एंड एंड सो ऑन वी मेट आई थिंक लास्ट 15 इयर्स अगो एट द वेदांत कांग्रेस इन फ्लोरिडा फर्स्ट टाइम एंड देन एट द एआर एंड देन लास्ट मंथ इन शिकागो एंड सो ऑन आई वुड लाइक टू शेयर योर uh life story your so many books that you have already published and so many other more books you are going to publish soon it's uh, and so your projects and so on but uh, let's let's start with your own life story how you became interested in india studies hindu studies so over to you professor jeffrey long in pennsylvania okay very good thank you so much pankaj bhai for inviting me here and uh, i'm i'm happy to share all of this uh, with you and anyone who cares to listen uh so uh, i um uh, did not uh, grow up in india uh, i grew up in missouri uh, so uh, i sometimes joke about missouri and masuri you know they these are very similar uh, names you know from india and, and the us but i grew up in a small town in missouri uh, i grew up in the roman catholic faith and uh, i uh, was from a very small family it's just uh, my parents and myself uh, but large extended family and fairly traditional i would say uh, somewhat conservative american family and uh, I grew up with uh, a big love for science fiction. So uh Star Trek and Star Wars, you know, these things were very very a uh, big part of my life and I, and I still love these things. And uh so those those were the kinds of interests I had as a child. And I I would say I had a, a pretty happy childhood. I I was good in school, my parents and my grandparents, everyone was very proud of me and things were going well. But when I was about to turn 11 years old, Um uh, my mother and I got a phone call in the middle of the night 3 a.m. my father had been in a terrible accident and uh he was paralyzed from his shoulders down he was rendered quadriplegic and uh for the next year and a half uh our lives were centered around taking care of him uh he was in the hospital for several months but then he finally came home uh we converted a room into basically a hospital room and my mother took care of him and i i did whatever i could to help this was a really a tragic time it was a very very hard time for our family and so uh my father was uh, he was very depressed he had always been a very physically active person he was a musician and a carpenter and he had all kinds of physical interests and he could now do nothing and uh, he uh, he was a veteran of the vietnam war so through the veterans administration he was uh, given this uh, really nice at at that time uh, really high tech uh, wheelchair which uh, he was able to control with a lever with his mouth and this gave him some independence he was able to go outdoors and uh we would go with him you know to be sure everything was okay and he was always very independent and he he got very angry with this eventually he said uh uh you know just let me go on my own i'll be okay you know so we were absolutely terrified but he would go out on his own and uh it was a very small town so people knew him and uh you know everyone said hello to him and you know knew you know knew who he was but uh we didn't realize what he had in mind um when uh, i was 12 this was the summer of 1981 uh he uh placed himself in the path of an oncoming train and uh ended his own life that way and we uh we're we're pretty certain that this was deliberate uh, that it was not an accident uh and uh it was something that uh, just really was was a I, i would say probably a defining event in my life uh i knew nothing about india or indian philosophy or vedanta at that time but i had several intuitions uh, at that point and one of them was uh when when my father was uh, had been injured 
uh, I really realize that we are not this physical body. Uh, this physical body is not who we are. It's our vehicle. It's our point of interface between our consciousness and the material world. But we are not this body. And I became convinced of that because I saw my father's body become a prison for his spirit. And I really believe that when he ended his life, he was actually freeing himself from that imprisonment. And I never blamed him for that. I, I, I was very sympathetic to, to what he did. But it was still very shocking and very uh, uh, troubling for all of us in the family and in the whole community because it's such a small town. It was a very public event. One of the churches had just, it was a Sunday evening, and one of the churches had just gotten out. So there were a whole bunch of people around when this happened. Um, I was uh, playing at a friend's house, and I didn't even know my grandparents came and told us uh, that he had passed away and, and what had happened. So this led me to really reflect very, very deeply about religion and philosophy, and I, I wanted answers to the big questions. Why, did, why do these things happen? Why do we suffer so much? What happens after we die? If we're not the body, if we're something else, where does that something else go when the body is no more? And of course, growing up in the Catholic Church, there were teachings about that. There was the idea of heaven and hell. Um, but uh, that always bothered me because if you think about the traditional Christian teaching, it's, you know, after you die, after you have this very short, finite lifespan, there's this infinity, eternity of either heaven or hell. And uh, my experience was that nobody I knew seemed to be either good enough to to go to heaven or bad enough to go to hell. Uh, the, you know, infinity is, is a long, long time. You know, like even someone like Hitler, you might imagine maybe, maybe he should suffer for billions of years for what he did. But billions of years is still finite. It's not forever and ever and ever with no hope of any uh, kind of redemption. So the thought that entered my mind was that there was this Catholic idea of purgatory, where there's this sort of intermediate place where you go if you're basically, you know, in what they call in a state of grace, you're headed for heaven, but you're not quite purified. You're not quite yet ready for that. So there's this intermediate state called purgatory. And my thought was, well, maybe we're already in purgatory. Maybe this is purgatory, and we just keep coming back here until we um, are purified, right? Until we figure out and learn what we need to learn and move on. So I was already thinking this way before I knew about uh, Indian philosophy. So for me, it was almost instinctive. And then several things happened. I really think for Americans, uh, popular culture serves the role that the Ramayana and Mahabharata do in India, uh, that uh, we think through our popular culture. And so two pop culture sources really kind of uh, awakened my mind to think about India. One was the Beatles, uh, the music of the Beatles, which I had really gotten a love for around the time my father died. And he was a fan also. And uh, one of the things he had me do uh, was record all of his records on cassette tapes. And then he could control that with his mouth control device that he had. And so I taped all his Beatles records, and I, I just really enjoyed them. And as probably many listeners know, the Beatles, especially George Harrison, had a very deep interest in Hinduism, uh, went to India. Um, George Harrison was the most serious. He went many times to India, a uh, good friend with Ravi Shankar, uh, very close with Srila uh, uh, Prabhupada, who started the ISKCON, and uh, really was very serious about it uh, throughout the rest of his life. And this made a deep impression on me. I was just very drawn to this idea of this Indian spirituality. It just seemed very profound. And then I saw the movie Gandhi when it came out in 1982, and that really impressed me as well. Uh, you know, my heroes before that were, you know, Luke Skywalker and Captain Kirk. You know, they were fighting bad guys with, you know, lightsabers and phasers. You know, here is someone who fought with the power of truth. 
and uh, who, who fought without doing harm. And uh, I was very captivated by that. So I started reading everything I could find on Gandhi. I started, you know, and I was delving more and more into the Beatles. And reading about Gandhi and then also uh, in some of the record uh, album cover art of George Harrison, there were these references to the Bhagavad Gita. And I thought, well, this must be a very important book. I, I need to find this Bhagavad Gita. Uh, it was not in our local library. Uh, I, I had read all three of our books on world religions that were in the local library. And, uh, you know, nothing was there. And uh, one day it was really interesting. I just sort of came across it. Um, I was with my grandmother at a, a sale. Uh, this is what they call a flea market. People sell old things. And, and this was in the parking lot of the Methodist Church in the town where I grew up. And uh, I had been thinking about, you know, the Bhagavad Gita, but I, I wasn't thinking I would find it there, but I found it there. Uh, I was uh, uh, looking at a, a display and uh, people had a bunch of old magazines and books and paperbacks. And I, I love books, so I thought that'll be interesting. And there's the Bhagavad Gita right on top. And uh, it was the, the very elaborately illustrated ISKCON version of, of, of uh, Prabhupada, the Bhagavad Gita as it is, uh, as it's called. I opened it. And has these beautiful illustrations. I opened it, uh, you know, sort of randomly, and, and I saw this picture. One of the illustrations is of this man who has died, and he's surrounded by his mourning family. And you see a Hindu monk sort of standing to the side observing, and he sees Lord Krishna in the hearts of every one of these beings. And there's a quotation at the bottom that says, The wise lament for neither the living nor the dead. And it gave a page number. And so I looked up that page number, and it was uh, chapter 2, verse 11 of the Gita, where uh, Lord Krishna is saying to Arjuna, uh, there was never a time when you and I did not exist, nor any future when we will cease to be. Uh, just as someone casts off old and worn out clothing and puts on a new set of clothing, so the soul casts off the body at death and takes on a new body, continues its journey, says the wise are not deluded by these changes. And this just, this was, uh, this was, I, I joke that this is when I became a born-again Hindu, uh, because uh, I, uh, I, I really felt that this ancient book from the other side of the world was speaking directly to me and to my experience and confirming what I was already sort of starting to think in my mind. And so uh, I, bought the, I bought the Gita for a quarter, <laughs> the best quarter I ever spent, I think. And uh, that really, uh, I think, is what set me off on my life journey, because from then on, I wanted to study everything I could about India, about Hinduism. I was really interested in studying all the world's religions. I, I explored Chinese philosophy, uh, Islam, uh, many, many different things. But what always I sort of came back to was, was the Bhagavad Gita because it just made such sense to me, uh, the, the vision in the Gita, the vision of Vedanta. So to kind of you know, move the story ahead a little bit, uh, I read a lot. I mean, all through the, I was 14 when I found the Gita. So uh, all through the rest of you know, middle school and high school, I was reading uh, Houston Smith's uh, uh, World Religions book, uh, uh, Paramahansa Yogananda's autobiography of a yogi, Aldous Huxley's The Perennial Philosophy, uh, Swami Rama's Living with the Himalayan Masters. These are all books that I read and, 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 and multiple translations of the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, like I collect Bhagavad Gita's basically, you know, and each, each one gives a different picture. And then, uh, eventually I made it to college and, uh, took uh, courses with Paul Griffiths, uh, who uh, at that time was a scholar of Buddhism. He shifted over into Catholic studies now and is at Duke University, but uh, he was at University of Notre Dame at that time, which is a Catholic university, which is where I went to college. 
And I was studying philosophy and theology. I knew I wanted to be a writer. I knew I wanted to be a professor because I wanted to talk about and share these ideas that had inspired me so much with as many people as I could. Uh, another big inspiration for me was Joseph Campbell. Uh, his TV series, The Power of Myth, came out uh, when I was in high school. And he, I, he was sort of like a Carl Sagan of, of religious studies. And I thought, I'd like to do something like that. I'd, I want to talk about these awesome things for a living. You know? So uh, uh, when I took Paul Griffith's courses, uh, the first course I took with him was a survey of Hinduism, Buddhism, and Taoism. And uh, the second day of class, I followed him back to his office. And uh, almost like he was my guru, I said, uh, you know, uh, I want to do what you do. I want to teach classes like this. So guide me. So he became my guide, and uh, he recommended that I apply to University of Chicago for graduate school, and uh, which is where I went next and sort of continued my journey. And now this is sort of, I guess you could say, the intellectual side of the journey, the professional side of the journey. On the personal side, I felt myself so drifting further and further away from the Catholic Church. Uh, I went to a Catholic university, so I was completely surrounded by the Catholic Church. I have a very high regard for the Catholic Church, but I was seeing limitations in the theology. From my point of view, the Hindu theology, the Vedanta, was much more expansive in its vision, and this is really what I identified with. And I met a professor at Notre Dame who was another professor, uh, Stephen Fredman, who is a devotee of Gurumai uh, in the Siddha Yoga uh, lineage. So she was the successor of Swami Muktananda in that tradition. So uh, I began practicing in that tradition uh, for a period of several years and uh, had very good experiences. And uh, through meditation and the Shaktipat experience, it was very profound. So this sort of all confirmed me on this spiritual path. And then simultaneously, I was taking the intellectual route of of studying at Chicago to be a, a scholar of, of religion. Okay, that was a interesting uh, summary of your uh, your uh, journey from Missouri to Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, now let's uh, focus on. Uh, let's uh, hear from you uh, how your experience was in Chicago. Chicago was obviously the place where. Swami Vivekananda, the first Hindu to come to North America 125 years ago. And yes, Chicago yes. was also the place, Chicago is also the place where you became a professor, a scholar, a PhD in Hinduism. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, eventually you also adopted the name uh, Vivekananda. So, <laughs> right. So if you would like to share that part sure. of your Sure. I'll, be, I'll be very happy to talk about that. So, yeah, Chicago was a very important phase in my life. Uh, several things happened there. Um, one, I probably the most significant was I met my wife. Uh, I was living in the international house as a dorm for graduate students, and I was studying Sanskrit, and I was taking uh, courses from various professors at Chicago, and also making friends there, uh, other students. And uh, my wife, her name is Mahua. Uh, she is a professor of Japanese. And in fact, uh, for the last 19 years, we've both been teaching in the same college uh, here in Pennsylvania, Elizabethtown College. And she's from India, uh, and she is uh, she grew up Hindu, and uh, she's Bengali. And as many Bengali's families do, <clears throat> Bengali families do her her, her family had a very close association with uh, the Ramakrishna mission, the Ramakrishna tradition, which I had also read about and studied through reading uh, Houston Smith's work and Aldous Huxley and various other people. And I knew Chicago was a very significant place because that's where Swamiji first came to America, gave the, the, the very renowned you know welcome address, Sisters and Brothers of America. And in fact, the place where he gave the speech today is the Museum of the Art Institute. And I actually taught part-time at the Art Institute for a while. And it was a 
a big honor to be there. I, I taught a course on uh, Indian philosophy uh, for three years uh, when I was still doing my dissertation, and uh, it was wonderful to work there and to be in that space. Uh, you know, and there are all kinds of commemorations of it there. They have the the welcome address on these steps, they have the steps sort of lit up with the words of the speech, and you can see that in Chicago. And then uh, the that portion of Michigan Avenue where the uh, Art Institute is, they're called Vivekananda Marg now, so it's named after him. So it's a wonderful thing. Um, in terms of my name, and this is an interesting thing, so uh, when Mahua and I met, uh, we, we decided very quickly we wanted to get married. I mean, within a month of having met, we said we wanted to get married. And uh, our friends who know us, uh, one person said it was almost like an arranged marriage, but without the arrangement. You know, we just uh, like intuitively knew that that we were, you know, we were best friends. We just we had many of the same thoughts and interests. So we got married. Um, now it's interesting. Uh, Mahua at that time was still teaching in India, and I think some of your listeners may be interested in this because. Uh, I was at University of Chicago, which is in some ways very notorious among many Hindus because some of the scholarship that's come out of Chicago uh, is something that, that people are very critical of, and, and I think for good reasons. Uh, another university that uh, a lot of Hindus are very critical of is JNU in India, and that's where my wife used to teach. So we're both connected with these two sort of very notorious places. Uh, but uh, we both had good experiences. Uh, she uh, uh, had a lot of good experiences uh, in JNU. She did her degrees there and was hired there and was teaching. So uh, she had to go back and teach. You know, we met in the summer of 93. And so uh, we had to part, uh, and uh, it was very sad for us. So I went to Paul Griffiths, who had been teaching at Notre Dame, but he actually went to Chicago around the same time I was applying there. So I continued to work with him, and he was my advisor throughout my time in Chicago. And um, so I went to uh, I, I went to him, and I, I told him the whole story. I said, I've met this person, and we want to get married. We want to be together, but I want to finish my Ph.D. Uh, I know I need to go to India anyway to, to learn about the country and experience it and do field work and so on. So uh, normally you would do that near the end of your Ph.D. When you're, when you're writing your dissertation. But I said to him, can I just go now? Is that okay? <laughs> he said, sure, go. So uh, I was in India almost two years. And we got married uh, at, through the Arya Samaj, uh, at the Arya Samaj Mandir in uh, Vasant Bihar. And uh, we picked the Arya Samaj not because we are especially drawn to the Arya Samaj. We're more Ramakrishna mission people. But the Arya Samaj does the very basic Vedic wedding. Uh, it's very simple. It's very beautiful. And, uh, and interestingly, we found out something when we went to the Arya Samaj. Uh, the priest, the pundit there, told us that uh, I would need to become Hindu to have a Hindu wedding through the Arya Samaj. And uh, Mahua and her father, uh, both, you know, again, being good Ramakrishna mission people, they thought, you know, oh, you know, making someone convert, that, that's not very Hindu. You know, we don't believe in conversion. And then I said, you know, this is great. I said, this, this is my opportunity to really formally kind of declare to the world, you know, this is this is where I am, right? Because I had stopped going to the church many, many years ago, and, and I'd been practicing Siddha Yoga. Uh, Siddha Yoga, after a period of time, I was uh, involved less and less, because just because I was so busy as a, as a student at Chicago. You, they, they make you take so many classes, you're, so much of your time you're studying, that I sort of neglected uh, my spiritual life in that sense. And I sort of uh, just kind of drifted from that. But my, my heart was still there. My, my belief was still there. And uh, so when uh, they said, oh, you, you need to become Hindu, I was like, great, that's, that's perfect. I, I want to be Hindu. I, I think of myself as 
sort of Hindu anyway. I'm not Indian, but this is my worldview, my belief system, my way of understanding things. I loved living in India, and the people are great in India. I always, I mean, India has its challenges, but those are all on the sort of physical level. Uh, but just the, the people are so warm and kind, and you're experiencing this all the time. And so I said, uh, yeah, I, I want to be Hindu. So um, part of that was taking a Hindu name. And my uh, uh, Mahua's father, soon then to become my father-in-law, had this idea uh, that since I studied at Chicago and I was uh, studying Sanskrit and Hinduism and these things, I should be named Vivekananda. So that is what the priest named me, and that is my Hindu name. Now, I've had, had, had conversations with people before who say, well, why don't you use your Hindu name all the time? Why don't you publish and speak as Vivekananda? There's a reason for that, actually, which is uh, in the Ramakrishna tradition, uh, this name is special. And, uh, of course, there are many, many Hindu guys named Vivek or Vivekananda. It's not an unusual thing. But in the Ramakrishna tradition, even the Swamis don't take the name Vivekananda. That name is never recycled. And so I've always thought that if I did that, the Swamis might think I was, I don't know, being arrogant or, uh, you know, sort of uh, trying to, uh, you know, claim something for myself that, that is greater than, than what I would, would want to claim. Uh, but I'm very proud to have that name. It's, it's a profound honor to have it. So uh, I, I don't mind people knowing that and, and uh, being aware of it. But that's why I don't sort of use it all. I don't want to abuse it. <laughs> so I, I, it's special. I keep it special. Whenever we do pujas or anything like that, you know, you have to give your name and your gotra and so on to the priest. And that, that's my name that I use uh, in that context. So, yeah, I don't know, because we met in Chicago last month and I thought uh, it just came to me now to ask you this question that Chicago is the place where he spoke in 1893. Chicago is the place where you got a PhD in Hinduism. Yes. And then you, and then I was reminded that you took this name, and that's why I asked this question. I didn't mean to ask this. But oh, yeah. It's just all, all kinds of things converged there, and it was really, really interesting. And uh, something else about Chicago I think people yeah. might be interested in is, uh, um, of course, uh, probably the most well-known professor from, from Chicago for many Hindus is Wendy Doniger, who is very, very controversial uh, because of uh, her writings on Hinduism. She was one of my teachers, and, uh, you know, people may be interested in uh, what was that like, you know, what would, and yeah. how, how, how did that relationship go. And it's very, it is very interesting. I would say in terms of our worldviews and our ways of looking at the world and life, mm -hmm. there are probably no two people more different than uh, Wendy and, and myself. And we had always sort of friendly debates about things. But I would say on a personal level, she was always very warm, very friendly, very caring, and really a very supportive teacher. Uh, I, uh, I had uh, – uh, Chicago can be a tough place. It's very uh, – they, they call it intellectual boot camp, right? It, it's uh, – you're learning a very tough intellectual discipline there. There's a lot of skepticism. Every claim you make has to be backed up with arguments and evidence and logic. And that's why I went there. I wanted to have that sort of very tough, rigorous experience. Because then that makes you able to argue better and make your case for things and uh, really to be taken more seriously as a scholar. So I, I wanted that experience. But it's hard. I mean, if you find your values, your beliefs, and everything that you love being 
sort of abused on a daily basis. It, it is hard. And then add to that the fact that the weather is horrible there. Uh, that it's you know so so you you trudge out of International House and you you walk down the street in zero degree weather and high wind. And then you hear uh, all kinds of things about how you know the Bhagavad Gita was interpolated into the Mahabharata, and uh, you know it's actually you know a bunch of different things. And I mean, just constant you know sort of uh, uh, engagement with this kind of uh, debate. But it sharpens your mind, and so I I'm very grateful for having that experience. So I, I think it's possible to disagree with what scholars say, uh, and yet. On a personal level, respect that you know they're they're teaching you something. And if you think of it from a Vedantic perspective, everybody we meet is a form of divinity. Every everybody, whether they're your friend or your enemy, whether they're your family member, your your child, your parent, uh, these are all God speaking to us. So I think uh, we we can uh, as Hindus, if I can call myself Hindu, and, and no one's offended by that. Uh, we can disagree with things that a professor like Wendy Doniger might say and yet see God in her also. And I think that's very important. I, I think in our world today, there's not enough of, of that. And so uh, we hate the people we disagree with. And then we see horrible things. I mean, I'm still in shock, I think, a little from what happened at the synagogue in Pittsburgh on Saturday. This was just not that far from where we live in Elizabethtown. Uh, my wife's cousin lives in Pittsburgh. Uh, there's a Vedanta Society in Pittsburgh. We know the people there. And I don't know anyone from that synagogue, but uh, it's just, it was very close. And our local Hindu temple uh, is now looking very seriously at security uh, and also doing outreach to the people from the synagogue and showing interfaith support. But also, uh, you know, have to, having to think about the fact that there are these deranged people out there. So uh, we really have to learn to all disagree in a more uh, Vedantic way, uh, I think. You know, the, the great Acharyas were able to debate with each other very vigorously, but uh, no one killed each other or hurt each other uh, in any way. So I think uh, that should be our model. Right. That's uh, the last few sentences reminded me of your Jain connection. You also bring in yeah. a lot of Anekantvad yes. in your writing, in your thinking. So tell us how you connect uh, Jainism with your uh, uh, process theology and Hindu Vedantic. Uh, okay, oh, very good. And, and, that, and that sort of goes back to, to my Chicago days, because when I was thinking of uh, what I wanted to do for my dissertation, um, again, my, my main professor, uh, my main teacher there was Paul Griffiths, who is a philosopher of religion. So I went into the philosophy of religion area, which they had just developed at Chicago. And I wanted to give a, a good, rigorous argument uh, that would sort of pass the tests of, of these, you know, skeptics at Chicago uh, for Ramakrishna's teaching, you know, yato mat tatopat, you know, that there, are, there is, is uh, every, every system of belief and practice is a path to ultimate truth. Mm -hmm. And it's a sentiment that's very widespread in the Hindu community, uh, but it's kind of, it, it risks becoming sort of a platitude. You know, people say this, yeah, many paths to one truth, but no one really studies other traditions to really see what the differences are and, and so on. So uh, I wanted to argue for this in a rigorous way. And I also wanted to, of course, show uh, one of the things I had to show was, you know, mastery of at least one system of Indian philosophy. And I was reading a book by B.K. Maltilal, Bhima uh, <clears throat> Krishna Maltilal. Uh, it was a wonderful book on logic, language, and reality. It's mostly about Nyaya, but he also has a large section on Jainism, and he talks about Anekantvad and Syadvad. 
And uh, then he has another book that's just on Anekantavad, which really influenced my thinking a lot. And what I found with Anekantavad was that uh, even though in my mind uh, I associate this teaching of many paths to truth with Sri Ramakrishna, uh, and you find it in many uh, Indian traditions, I think the Jains, more than any other community, developed this into a rigorous system of logic uh, that can really address the question, how is it that different paths, which teach different things, <clears throat> and which sometimes contradict one another, how can these all be true in some sense? And I think the Jains really took that question very, very seriously and developed a complex system of logic that sort of breaks the claims of a tradition down to their core metaphysical principles. And if you come down to the core metaphysical principles, you find that they are not necessarily incompatible. In fact, they can be complementary to one another. And this is something else that Swami Vivekananda says. He says, you know, how can how can all these different paths be, uh, you know, uh, how can they all be true? And he says, well, uh, they are, he uses the term supplementary. Um, I think he says complementary at one point as well. But, you know, they, they can be combined uh, in a synthesis uh, that is not uh, incoherent, but that's internally consistent and logical. And uh, Pravajika Vrajaprana, who's a, a very good friend of mine and a mentor of mine in the Ramakrishna tradition, she writes that uh, the various religions and philosophies can be likened to pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. Mm -hmm. And I grew up solving jigsaw puzzles. I love these. I, I played these all the time as a child. And, you know, each piece of a puzzle is different. Mm -hmm. They're not the same, right? In the same way, it's wrong if we say religions are the same. They're not the same. They're different, but you can fit these pieces together and they form a larger picture. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that Jainism was a great help in developing this idea of, of pluralism, as, as scholars call it, this idea of many paths to one truth. Now, another important piece of that, uh, which you mentioned, is process theology, uh, which goes back to the uh, English uh, philosopher, Alfred North Whitehead, uh, who was a, a friend and colleague of Bertrand Russell and... Uh, was originally quite a skeptic, but after the, his, he lost his son in the First World War, and he became very interested in the spiritual side of life. And he develops this way of thinking, which has many, many affinities with Indian philosophy. A lot of people have written about how similar his process thought is to Buddhism. Uh, what I found was that it's also very close to Jainism, and that if you draw together, if you sort of synthesize Whitehead's thought and Jain philosophy, Anekantavad, you get this very kind of comprehensive picture of reality that can incorporate dimensions of many different traditions and philosophies into this larger synthesis. And I found that Whitehead's uh, thinking is a good way to sort of translate Indian philosophical concepts into the idiom of the Western world because, uh, of course, ideally everyone will use the Sanskrit terms and that's what people like you and I are trying to very patiently and gently teach people, or I use the Sanskrit term because it doesn't mean the same thing often as the English term, but that uh, one way of sort of drawing these two traditions together is is through this system of Whitehead's thought. I, I think he was probably an Indian philosopher in a previous life. Um, he, he was well-read in Indian philosophy, and uh, some have accused him of appropriating things, uh, you know, cultural appropriation without attributing. Uh, I think... Uh, some of that might have happened, but I suspect it was more unconscious that his thinking was just very much in line with, with this way of thinking. And what I've tried to do, and now other people are also doing, uh, Andrew Schwartz uh, has a book out that's doing this. Uh, Brienne Donaldson's done this, some of this in her work, showing how with, with this sort of synthesis of Whitehead's thought and Jane thought, 
uh, you can make a very, very powerful argument not only for, for pluralism but for an ecological uh, vision of reality, which I know is very close to your work and, and to what you do. And I, I think these two things, ecology and pluralism, are really essential to human survival right now. I mean, the, the two big threats to us at the moment are climate change, which comes from our unbridled consumerism and materialism, and conflict between worldviews, which leads us to uh, destroy the environment and each other. And uh, these things feed in, into one another because uh, as, as things get worse on Earth due to climate change, we're going to have to cooperate with one another to share the resources. And if we, and if we still hate each other because we have different worldviews, that's going to be very difficult. And we're, we're really imperiling ourselves. So... Uh, you know, I think Indian philosophy and process thought, and I think these really provide intellectual tools which can, uh, uh, in combination with, with science, uh, really uh, help us save humanity and, and pave the way for the future. Right. Wonderful. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about your uh, work in progress, which is uh, Hinduism in America. Yes. Uh, so please tell us uh, how that work is going on. Okay, I'm I'm very excited about this work. Uh, the the subtitle, the title of this book, it's a textbook that's going to be coming out from Bloomsbury, hopefully in early 2019. Uh, now, last year I said it would be coming out hopefully in early 2018, but I my I've gotten bogged down in many many projects and the work has gotten slowed. But uh, I'm very excited about it. It's it's called Hinduism in America, and the subtitle is A Convergence of Worlds. And I call it a convergence of worlds because I'm trying to do something a little different in this book from what I've seen in other books on Hinduism in America. Uh, there are two types of books on Hinduism in America. One focuses on the Hindu community, the heritage Hindu community coming from India, settling in America, adapting to American culture and life, preserving Hindu traditions, and so on. Another type of book, uh, which uh, you see like Phil Goldberg's American Veda, for example, is about Westerners who get excited about and drawn to Hindu traditions and uh, Hindu spiritual teachers and how that has affected American culture in various ways as well. And the people who are experts in one of those tend to uh, not know as much about the other and vice versa. And so um, what I want to do is bring those two conversations together. Uh, I'm not saying I'm the first to have ever done this, but I think it's going to be the first textbook that really tries to do this. That is both uh, a chronicle of the coming of the Hindu immigrant community into America. Uh, this community struggles with racism, with misunderstandings of the tradition, uh, with you know various kinds of issues that have come up uh, through the years, stereotypes and so on. And then simultaneously you have uh, these sort of crazy Americans like me who uh, get all excited about this and, you know, uh, uh, have gurus and, you know, uh, Indian names and that sort of thing. And uh, how do these two things fit together? Because what I'm seeing in more recent years is as the second and even third generation of Hindus grow up in America, uh, the difference between growing up Hindu in America and being a non-Indian or a person who's not ethnically, you know, uh, drawn from, from the Hindu uh, sort of descent, uh, getting, getting drawn to the tradition, the differences between those two are less and less. And uh, you even see non-Indian uh, people uh, teaching Hinduism to children in temples and that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, you have traditions like... Uh, you know, the, you have the, the Swamis from Hinduism today who are almost entirely uh, of sort of European ancestry. And uh, in the Vedanta Society, we have uh, most of our Swamis are from India, but we have quite a few who are not. 
and uh, we're, we were sort of the pioneers in that regard. So you have this convergence of worlds. You have this coming together of uh, two groups of people, and uh, sometimes there's conflict. Uh, I think that if you are uh, Indian in America and you want to preserve your Hindu traditions and keep them as much like they were in India as possible, this is uh, sort of a conservative uh, outlook. You know, you, you're, you're concerned about preserving things and passing them on to the next generation intact. If you're the kind of Westerner who's drawn to Hinduism, you're a bit of a rebel. You, you don't mind leaving your church or your synagogue and trying something entirely new and you know, uh, uh, thinking outside the box and, and so forth. So there can be uh, a mismatch, I think, very often uh, between the interests of, of these two groups. But I find they often converge, and, and as the idea of what Hinduism is becomes clearer in people's minds, uh, I think uh, there is more of a convergence, and uh, you see a lot more Westerners who now who are who want to be very serious Hindus, and they'll they'll uh, be quite critical of, for example, some of the people who uh, perpetuate yoga, but without uh, actually connecting it with uh, with Indian philosophy or with Hinduism at all. And so, uh, there the interests of these two are, are really coming together more and more. Our first Hindu representative in Congress, uh, Tulsi Gabbard, is actually not someone of Indian descent. Uh, she's someone whose parents uh, took up a Vaishnava tradition, and she was raised in that tradition. And, uh, you know, she now we have four Hindus in Congress, but she, she was the first and probably the best known. And so uh, these two are, are coming together in all kinds of interesting ways. So that's the, the focus of my book is, is these two communities gradually merging as one mm-hmm. and forming what we what we now think of as as Hinduism in America? Oh, okay, wonderful. All right. Okay. Um, uh, you also have uh, uh, other projects that uh, probably we can uh, since we discussed pluralism and yeah. maybe we can talk about your article uh, hopefully coming up soon in my own volume for Bloomsbury. Yes, you you connect Anekantwad and uh, with the book Kali's Child and that controversy and how that book could have been a different one, right? If, uh, if you applied Anekantwad, uh, that's right, that's right. Because uh, I think I, I think that a lot of the and, and this sort of goes back to some of what we were talking about with Wendy Doniger and so forth. A lot of the conflict uh, that emerges between uh, Western scholars of uh, Hinduism and uh, the Hindu community, uh, uh, some of it I think comes from uh, very different starting points in terms of worldview, and uh, the what I would broadly call materialism or physicalism uh, is a very widespread philosophical position in the academy. It's it's sort of uh, taken as the default position that if you're an intelligent thinking person and a scholar, that you don't believe in God or a soul or a higher consciousness or anything of that sort. That it's all material reality that you can see with the senses, and things are very quickly reduced to material factors. So psychological forces or economic forces, uh, these are sort of the two, right? I mean, if you think of the Purusharthas in uh, in Hinduism, you know, you have uh, Dharma and then uh, Artha, Kama, Moksha. And I think in the minds of many Hindus, Dharma and Moksha are really important. And if you're writing about Hinduism, you should be talking about dharma, that is, you should be talking about values and what people do and how they understand it, or moksha, the spiritual path. 
but the focus of a lot of our scholars is on uh, artha and kama. Uh, artha in the sense of uh, economic forces, so uh, a lot of scholarship on Hinduism is focused on how it's implicated with power relations in India and so on. And then you have Kama, you know, the, the, the focus on uh, the psychological impulses, and of course the whole Freudian uh, approach uh, is there. And uh, what I suggested in my paper was that uh, if we look at it from the lens of Anekantavada, we don't have to reject or discount approaches that focus on Kama and Artha, but uh, see that that is just one piece of the puzzle. Right? That is just one thing. And uh, a book like Kali's Child, for example, and, and I've, I've met the author, uh, we've had, you know, cordial conversations. And uh, again, I think, you know, we need to sort of see God in everyone. But he, he, he's written some things, you know, of course, a lot of people in my tradition object to very strongly. And uh, I think part of that comes from sort of using this reductionist lens as though that were the total explanation of, uh, of the reality. And uh, I think in that particular case, I don't think that was the intent that he set out with, but it, it appears that way. I mean, there, there are portions of the text where it seems that some of these sort of psychological speculations are being stated as historical facts. And that's really been the objection uh, that uh, uh, I've known people in my tradition have said that had he said, this is my interpretation or this is my reading, it would have been much less. I mean, people would have still disagreed with it and objected to it. And there have been criticisms of the use of Bengali, uh, you know, that the, the translations were not accurate and so on. Uh, so there would still be, I think, objections. But it, would be, it wouldn't be at the level of, of offensiveness that, that I think many find it to be because it's sort of stating this um, somewhat tangentious uh, psychological interpretation as though it's a historical fact mm -hmm. and uh and then other people i and i've had in fact i've had much less cordial conversations with with other people who are you know not not the author of the book but defenders of the author who purely because it's written by a scholar from university of chicago the assumption is this is rigorous cutting-edge scholarship and if you object to it you're a fundamentalist and you don't know what you're talking about and, and so on and i at Chicago itself, that argument would not fly, right? I mean, that's that's not. Uh, you have to actually take the, the argument uh, on that level. But I think with Anikantavad, what we can do is look at a perspective with which we might disagree and say, okay, there's there is truth there, right? Mm -hmm. There is there is some there is something that the author is trying to express there, and uh, that that can be contextualized within a, a richer and fuller understanding that also incorporates. The transcendental perspective, the practitioner's perspective, and so on. So that's what I was arguing for in that piece. Yeah, that's very interesting because I uh, also interviewed Professor Nelsinga Sill recently, and he was pretty much saying the very similar what you just mentioned because he also knows Bengali language and he was not comfortable with the translation by Jeffrey Kirpal. Yes, right. in the that's right. Island, well, so yeah. and, and Swami Tyagananda has written extensively oh. about this. You know, there, there's a, a, the book that he co authored with Pravajika Vajaprana. Uh, where he gives a page after page of translations that uh, he says are are not accurate, mm -hmm. not correct, uh, and uh, you know I, I, when I actually spoke with Professor Kripal, uh, I realized uh, where the difference was in our understanding because I, I asked him a question I had wanted to ask for many years, which was, uh, okay, you you've said you've kind of revealed this secret that's there in the Katamrita, in the the text that we call the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, right? Uh, but Bengalis have been reading the original text for a century. Why didn't they see this? 
and uh, and and his answer was very interesting. He he said, uh, "Well, you have to have this sophisticated hermeneutic in order to perceive this." And then he said, "It's just like the homoerotic images in the Christian Gospels." And then I realized, okay, we're just seeing the world through very different lenses. Because my first thought, as someone who grew up Catholic, was what homoerotic images in the Christian Gospels, right? What is he talking about? And, uh, you know, now there are passages that I know people mentioned, like there, where uh, the disciple John is called the disciple that Jesus loves. And so there's this question, well, did they have some kind of special relationship that was different from everyone else and so on? But uh, uh, really, uh, you have to, I think, almost be looking for those things in order to see those things. And you could conceivably see those things anywhere, right? Uh, and then this is actually what prompted Freud to make that famous remark. I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, that sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, you know? <laughs> that uh, uh, you really, uh, um, you know, uh, that Wendy Doniger herself, actually, who's used this method, uh, was had some criticisms of it uh, when I was in Chicago. She said uh, the, the, the weakness of the Freudian method is that it's unfalsifiable. That is, uh, there's no possible way to refute it, uh, and therefore that means it's a circular argument. So uh, just the very act of objecting to a Freudian interpretation can cause the Freudian to look at you and say, so what was your relationship with your mother like? You know, it's a, to sort of, uh, you know, put the onus on you that you also are suffering from these unconscious maladies and so on. So um, it's it's kind of this impenetrable thing where whereas a, a valid scientific uh, claim has to there have to be conditions under which it could conceivably be proven wrong, mm -hmm. and that you repeat those conditions, and if it holds up, then it then it holds up. But the Freudian interpretation is unfalsifiable. It's, it it is almost like a religious claim mm -hmm. when you believe it or you don't, and uh, you know so. Um, these are these are some of the difficulties I, I find with that. Wonderful. I think uh, we talked a lot, and uh, uh, we discussed mostly. We discussed on your Anekandvad and process, process theology connection. We discussed about your uh, upcoming book on Hindu, Hindus in America: The Converging Worldview. And hopefully, we'll maybe uh, in the next episode we can talk about your other projects, your past projects, and your future projects. Oh, I, I would be delighted to do that. It's always a pleasure to talk with you, Pankaj, and uh, you know. Happy that you, grateful that you uh, thought it was w worth your viewers' time to have me in your program. <laughs> I think we, I think, uh, thanks for your time, and uh, hopefully it will be uh, uh, a start of a series of our conversations. That would be wonderful. I, I would definitely look forward to that. All right. Thank you, and namaste. Thank you. Namaste.